Welcome to Project 50's City Centre Walk. Please take a moment to listen to this introduction before beginning your journey around the city. To enjoy the walk fully, listen carefully to the directions given at the start of each chapter. You can always skip back if you're unsure of where you should be. After you hear the directions, you'll hear the title of the piece and its author. Pause the recording here until you're in the right place. If you're standing comfortably, then we'll begin. The walk begins at the Earl Grey Monument in the city centre. Below this statue is one of the many metro stations around the city. Face the steps that exit onto Grey Street. Don't Forget Me by Simon Moore He has seen thousands of smokers shielding from the rain in the doorway of number 9. 239 boy fights in the night, 22 girl fights in the sun. Workmen with plaques for Dobson Dickens. The sale by the Scots at Anderson Place of King Charles I to Parliament. He has looked down his nose at the communists, all the poor communists, and the socialists, and the teachers, and the spiritualists, healers, Salvation Army bands. He has spat on the fascists, but not on the singer of Maximo Park. He saw Pevsner, and Betjeman, and Charlton Heston, and Sting before he was famous, but never since. You would not want to see all the scenes he has seen in the big market in the middle of the night in the corner of his eye. He has not seen Anderson Place, nor Lortburn. He missed Louis H. Grimshaw too. The crafty old bugger took him from the blind side. Who was to know that three years later he turned map maker? Painting with his dad's trade, really. He saw Seven Dial Circus only briefly. But always Grey Street. Always the theatre. Always the Gateshead Hills in the sunlight. Grey in the streetlight. Purple in the moonlight. He didn't see the lightning, but he did see the ground his nose strangely distant. He saw a studio, and Headley's new head for him. He's never been sure when he passed from that one to his. Was it when the mouth was done, or the eyes? The fall knocked Queen Caroline quite out, and Wellington Fox. The slavery thing remained. No longer that what's-his-name in the Borge story, though. In 1987 he saw a six-year-old wonder. Is that the prince who gave away his sapphire eyes? In 1997, he saw Kyla carrying his camera to the end of Robinson in space. Unnerating, enigmatic, the bridges on the Tyne in spring. He remembers when that was a Waterstones, and Smith was over there. He saw Granger and Eldon and T. Dan Smith, Sid Chaplin, Catherine Cookson, my mum and dad. Christmas lights go up and down. 409 marriages end at the theatre door. 410 begin going in. You lot, ever streaming. He has strained his eyes at the final footsteps, treading out the tabs and heading from view. He wishes he could see where you're going. High above your heads the great reformer sighs. Magnus Evartus, Magnus Solitudo. The greater the city, the greater the loneliness. It's easy to see when stationary. At the last time of asking, he's seen 161 years. 26 feet shorter, but five years older than his brother in stone by Edward Hodges Bailey. Horatio Nelson, the soft southern bastard. Turn to face down the hill and walk along Grey Street. Continue over a pedestrian crossing until the Theatre Royal is on your left. Stand in front of the columns. Addiction by Bethany Rogers His man was quite a particular woman. She had the particular fading scent of summer about her, a particular smile and a particular attention for detail. The house was her domain. From the polished door knocker to the navy floral carpet that wound its way up the stairs like the crest of a Chinese dragon. On Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays he had to walk to the left of the carpet and on Tuesdays, Thursdays and Saturdays he had to walk to the right. She was particular about even floorboard wear and very particular about her carpets. But on a Sunday he was permitted to walk squarely in the middle allowing a deep pile of carpet to lovingly envelop his toes. On a Sunday, he carefully placed two feet on each stair, savouring his luxurious scent until the crest of the Chinese dragon led him to bed, where he awoke to find it was Monday, and descended on the left-hand side. Each household task had an assigned day and time. Dishes washed promptly after each meal, mirrors polished on a Tuesday afternoon, sheets aired on a Friday morning. And after school each evening, while he waited for his tea, his man would give him buttered scufflers with strawberry jam and tea and carefully plucked the crumbs from the carpet when he'd finished. This was until the day his mam flew like a bird from her cage of domesticity, 
and got herself a job as a cleaner with her own small wage. She still polished door knockers and adjusted picture frames, but in someone else's home. She wasn't there to make him buttered scufflers, jam and tea. She returned home late, her purse a little heavier, her home a little messier. It was not unclean, but it was not particular. With her new wages, she bought him a TV set so that he would not feel so lonely in the long afternoons before she returned home. He bathed in the moisture's sickly fluoresce, letting its meticulously edited image wash through him, distracting him from the duller mirrors, the gloomier piles of washing. He would rarely move, except to wrench the tuna, left or right. Ka-clunk. The screen would squirm for a second, and then, clink, the chosen program would flash up, a riot in shades of charcoal on the little screen. They would sit there until she came home, and tell him, Don't sit so close, kidder. You'll shatter those bonny blue eyes. And he'd stand, watch the image shrink to a dot in the darkness, and climb the stairs, up left or right, or in the middle, to his pot-bellied bed. The TV set was a tea chest sized monster that required a tanner every half hour to keep working. When he ran out of tanners, he'd scramble through drawers, blindly explore down the back of the settee, and dip into his mum's coat pockets. Eventually, it seemed, he had gleaned every last small shiny coin in the house, and soon learnt that his monster was not a fussy eater, and would accept anything of a similar size and weight. So he fed it on freshly plucked blazer buttons and foreign coins which had inexplicably found their way into his homes from across the globe. Eventually, he discovered how to rewire the box, and timidly approached it, a fork whose handle was bound in gaffer tape, so that the monster would no longer bleat for tanners and buttons. One evening, in 1969, a large group of people were gathered around the TV set. Round faces with orb-like eyes stared unblinkingly at the screen, as he had done every evening, every weekend. His mum had cleaned the house with a hint of old particularity, and draped her arms around him like marigolds clinging to the kitchen sink. Her eyes absorbed the monitor, and she did not say, Don't sit so close, kidder. It was then, with a soft clink, the screen squirmed and went blank. He was astonished by the fuss that followed. For years he had worried about what he was missing when he was at school, or what he was missing on the BBC when he was watching ITV. But he had never felt this feeling shared with so many people, and he never felt so close to her. He quietly got up and fetched his fork. Inside was another world, his world, where every circuit board particularly was neat and tidy so he could spot the problem immediately when he saw something was out of order, that crumb on the carpet or a smear on the mirror. It took him less than half an hour, and the screen squirmed and adjusted just in time to see a little man with a flag bouncing in a simple childlike manner, as if he had all the time in the world and beyond. After this, TV was never quite the same. A hit and miss on jukebox jewelry lost its significance, and he grew tired of mules called Muffin, News at Six, and... For some reason, his spine no longer pricked when he entered the twilight zone. He looked to the corner and saw a carcass, a beaten beast. He was greedy for something more, something real, something ambitious. And yet, what to do with a misspent youth? He paid no attention to maths or science. He had left geography unexplored. He only enjoyed drama, where he could reenact last night's TV and dream that he was part of the adventure behind the screen. It was a long time before he found himself in Grey Street, meandering through the wide stream of busy shoppers, and he suddenly found the inclination to stop, to look up where he could see a simple flag shaking in a lofty breeze. He looked up and was addicted. Continue down the hill until you reach Highbridge Street on your right. Before you leave, pause here and look around Britain's most beautiful street. Tale by Christine Goodwin Once upon a time... A long time ago, 246 years to be exact, there was born at Flodden in Northumberland a very special little boy whose name was Charles. His mummy and daddy were very rich, and Charles lived in a big house and had everything he ever wanted. Charles was a very clever boy who grew into a very just and fair man, and he cared a lot about the ordinary people. So he decided to go into politics. When he was only 22 years old, he became Member of Parliament for Northumberland. Charles thought that the parliamentary system of the time was unfair, and he told everybody in Parliament that there should be freedom of elections to the House of Commons. He said that a man ought not to be governed by laws, in the framing of which he has not a voice, 
and that he ought not to be made to pay any tax to which he should not have consented in the same way. He made very good speeches, and eventually he became leader of the Whig section of the government. He also became foreign secretary and leader of the House of Commons. He was well respected, and apart from that, he imported tea. You've probably heard of Earl Grey tea, and you might have tasted it. Although he tried again and again, Charles could not persuade the politicians to change the system. Many politicians liked the existing system, because it gave them power and privileges, and they did not want to change it. Then, one day, there was a new king in the country. It was King William IV, and he also believed, like Charles, that reform was necessary. So he asked Earl Grey to form a government, and Charles became Prime Minister. The first thing he did was to form a cabinet committee to produce a plan for parliamentary reform. His proposals were announced in February 1831, and the bill was passed by the House of Commons with a majority vote of 136. But most of the nasty, powerful, rich members of the House of Lords did not want to change the system, and despite a powerful speech by Earl Grey, the bill was defeated in the House of Lords by 41. The defeat of the Reform Act resulting in Earl Grey calling a general election. His party, the Whigs, were very popular with the people, and after the election, they had an even bigger majority than before in the House of Commons. Again, Charles's Reform Bill was passed by the House of Commons, but once again it was defeated in the House of Lords. The issue now became a battle between the ordinary people fighting for their rights and the nasty rich landowners in the House of Lords who didn't want ordinary people having a voice. Boo hissed to them all, I say. Bloody French usurpers, a lot of them, invading our island with William the Conqueror, taking our land, turning us into peasants and slaves, and then depriving us of our right to vote. Damn the French-born aristocracy. Bloody cheek. <clears throat> anyway, when people heard the news of the second defeat, riots took place in several British towns. Nottingham Castle was burnt down, and in Bristol the mansion house was set on fire. Says the book is right. In 1832, Charles, undeterred and convinced that Wright was on his side, tried again to get his reforms through the House of Lords. But despite the feelings of the general public being abundantly clear, the House of Lords still refused to pass the bill. Our hero, undaunted, now devised a cunning plan. He appealed to King William again and asked him to create a large number of new Whig peers to take their place in the House of Lords. And King William agreed. When the members of the House of Lords heard this news, they realised they had no choice. If they didn't pass the Reform Act, the House of Lords would be filled with Whig peers who would pass it anyway. Three cheers for Charles Earl Grey. And so the bill was passed in 1832, and large crowds celebrated everywhere in the streets of Britain. Earl Grey now called another general election, and in the newly formed House of Commons, with properly elected members of Parliament, our hero had a majority of over a hundred. Under his leadership, the Whigs were now able to introduce and pass a series of reforming measures. These include an act for the abolition of slavery in the colonies and the 1833 Factory Act, which improved conditions for children working in factories. Our canny Geordie Prime Minister did his best for the ordinary people, and that's why, when he died in 1845, the people of the North erected the monument to the memory of Charles Earl Grey, and from the top of it he now looks down Grey Street, which curves gracefully down to the River Tyne. Follow High Bridge Street until you reach the Duke of Wellington pub. Pause outside. Look, by Lloyd Riley. I let the flame flicker in front of my eyes before lighting the cigarette. It feels warm now. I look down and see people floating past like broken branches in a cobbled river below. You look up. The anonymous twitch of a steam curtain catches your eye. And that is me you'll never see. I blow smoke and turn the glass to mist. It's icy out there today, isn't it? I glance towards the corner of a darkened room, the stale smell transforming with my every movement, carrying joy and fear in waves across the wooden floor. And there it is, cold and still like a ship from a frozen sea, the last remaining entity of my endeavour. I walk closer now, letting the sound of my shiny shoes echo from the walls. I am not bitter. The ceiling seems to stretch and bend away from him, as if the presence of a stranger unnerves the room. I am not unnerved. I stroke my hand through his hair and scratch my palm against his prickled face. I give him a sarcastic slap. He does not say a word. I smile and turn away and return to the window frame. I can see your breath now. 
Gazing out of this window has become a twisted pastime. It's the silence of a side street that I like. Living here feels like hiding in the basement of the city, in the untidy room of a show mansion. Side streets give you freedom, so I have fixed things now. You have breathed again. Don't worry, I cannot touch it. But the object of my delights was never quite so distant, and the blossom sunshine of an open palm was always within grasp. Though now she sits beneath the soil, side by side with the contents of her armoury. What happened? Nobody knows where a train crash starts. A rusting bolt or an alcoholic driver both have a history. So when analysing death, it is crude to assign the moment of murder to the second life exists in the body. And in a relationship, this is no different. It takes time and planning to make things die. Yet I was unaware of such activities. I was the victim of crime. Though it was only after several months of neglect that I actually felt the blade against my skin. My train clash was explosive. Later I learned what the villain had done, and then it was only a matter of time before justice was delivered. I have owned this room all my life, and no one bothers me. It is so bare compared to the world out there, yet I retain sentiment more keenly than neon-clad screaming walls ever could. I don't let things escape now, but cities are so dispassionate, with fixed roots ensuring nobody falls into the river. No thanks. I want to live in a place transparent with honesty like a labyrinth with glass walls. I know I will never find the way out. I just don't want to repeat myself. So I hide just off the dull, grey, beaten track and conduct my business from there. Like I said, my business is justice and I am very successful at it. I look back at him. I can see inside his eyes now, big white marshmallows with bursting red love hearts scattered across the surface. He looks like a waxwork in a broken mirror. He almost looks alive. I wonder if he's been listening to this. Oh well. It's too late now. She was his last and so it was only fitting that he was mine. I am sure he feels honoured. Tomorrow I will take him out the back door and put him in the van. I will drive thirty miles into the countryside and bury him with the others. I will come back and clean the walls and dispose of the rope when the opportunity presents itself. It's only fair to do it this way. It makes me so sad to think of you now. First so ignorant and now so heavily burdened with what you did not want to know. Please do not think badly of me. Because of poor fear, this lover's lover, you say. Fear does not come into it. Fear is the girlish scream that whimpered from each of their lips, begging and crying for me to show them a little hope. I am not bitter. No, I do not fear. Tomorrow I will take a trip to see the ocean. I want to sit on the beach for a little while and watch the rain hit the waves, let the sand crawl over me. I want to feel the wind rip through from ear to ear. Who knows where I will go? Yet for now, this is the end. I stand here watching you, smoking the blistering black remnants of a broken heart. Look up. You will never see me again. Continue until the end of the street. You'll find an underground bathroom covered by a glass roof. Pause here a moment. Gone, by Jill Clough. Jim was not at all comfortable, it was obvious. He had that, I'd rather be up honest to crag, look, which meant he was uptight. Any minute now he might bolt and find the nearest rock face for a quiet bit of life-threatening endeavour. He always said that the only way he could get back in balance was when he held on only with his fingertips. This was not the day for my brother to disappear into self-management. It was too important to have Jim in his best life-saving mode, the one where he was smooth, confident and empathetic to the struggling novice on the other end of the rope. But I kind of understood what was happening. My personal rock face loomed in front of me this evening, and although it was metaphorical, it felt every bit as astounding in prospect. It was just slippery as a situation, making novices of us both. Jim could not sit still. There was little choice of where to sit in any case, I could only afford to rent a tiny room. His choices amounted to the bed, the chair at the desk, the desk itself. Jim had visited before, but this was the first time that I saw the room through his eyes as discomforting. What was wrong with it? Jim usually slung his jacket across the end of the bed. It was leather faded and spotted with grease, deep purple. He loved it. I almost envied his passion for leather. Today he could not bring himself to remove it. I'd bought a mirror as soon as I took the room, because there wasn't one. 
I felt the need for reflection. Jim took up position beside the mirror. It was curiously intimidating. What the hell, Jim? What's biting you? Oh, really? You can't think? For God's sake, give us a break. Oh, man. He threw up his arms in a gesture of helplessness that was so unlike him I could have almost laughed. Almost envy. Almost amusement. I needed a couple of unmistakable responses. Okay, come and look at yourself. Is this what you wanted, Joe? Are you satisfied now? Happy? His voice cracked like a boy's. Oh, God, let me not funk it. My image gazed back at me, calm, if a little moist about the temples. Dark suit, white shirt, no tie, black leather belt, black shoes. This was a man out, not for a fight, but a quiet evening. It was exactly what I had aimed for. But Jim was as tight as a drum. I could feel the vibrations. It's not the room that's bothering him, it's me, I said. Is it the suit? I see lots of suits on Haymarket, Northumberland Street, wherever. I don't have to look like you. We didn't have a contract that said I had to dress like you. I was heating up and didn't like it. Heat must have been pushing out from me like waves. The mirror began to mist over and automatically I wiped my sleeve across to clear it until Jim shifted, his jacket creaking. You see, said Jim, your metabolism is all over the place. Man, this is hard. Give us a break, Jim. I passed the point of no return months ago. If I have to, I'll do this on my own. I'm my own man now. Suddenly he relaxed. Okay, so you are. Unexpectedly, he took off his scarf and dabbed at the sweat on my face. It almost unmanned me. Let's go then. Whilst we're in the mood. I was the youngest sibling again. Forever behind him on the trail, rowing to catch up. How do I look? We set off. We had different maps of the city. I'd only moved here six months ago. I had a place at university for the coming year, but Jim would have left by then. On this extraordinary evening, we thought we could create new common ground. We would go to see a film on which we would compromise by flicking a coin. We would call in at a pub that neither of us had visited. Not too difficult as far as I was concerned, but more of a challenge for him. We might get a takeaway. The lunge of the bus propelled us onto the pavement. Gentlemen, the men's toilet marked the first stage of the journey. Well, said Jim, this is it. He straightened his jacket automatically. I never thought I'd be nervous about a slash. This is the moment of truth, is it? Hardly. I've been and gone, I said. It went six months ago when I started the tablets. As I rubbed my chin, he caught my eye and laughed. There was a satisfying rasp. I suppose I'll get used to it, he said. But I've got to say that the first time I let my razor to my little sis so that he can shave his beard will do my head in. I still haven't sorted out what to do with all those memories of us as kids. Come on then, I said. That's why we're here. The first time into the men's was brothers. Turn right and head up the incline into the big market. Go over a pedestrian crossing and continue straight up onto Newgate Street. Pass over another crossing and pause outside the gate. Cut by Beatrice Pickup. A gate, an opening or a closing. A doorway to something new or a barrier. Is it shut? Is it surmountable? She waits inside of the gate. If a gate could be described as a large glass bubble, a goldfish bowl filled with bars, restaurants, a casino and a cinema. Inside it was warm and busy. One couldn't get bored, but she still felt that vulnerability of the goldfish bowl. Eyes on her, she was stood alone waiting for Sarah, and she felt lost and drained after a fight with Nick. They'd had another blazing row, and she'd made yet another tearful phone call to Sarah, who'd again sagely informed her that men are bastards, Nick in particular, that he'd never change, and that what she really needed was a girl's night out. Except she didn't feel like one. She wanted to be at home curled up in bed with Nick, for them to be in one of their intimate moods, tender and close. Instead, she'd fled a frosty atmosphere inhabited by tiptoed footsteps and averted eyes. She looked at her reflection in the curved wall of glass. She looked tired and older. She lifted her chin, straightened her back, flung her shoulders back and let her arse stick out. That was better. More of the old confidence, the old poise. She'd have a girl's night out and she'd have a bloody good time. Flirt a bit, build her self-confidence, 
feed what felt like a starving vanity. If the men were nice, she'd go home boys and the mood to reconcile with Nick. Or realise what a bloody idiot he was. If the men were lewd perverts, then she'd go home, desperately thankful for the man she had in him. That she had won it all. At least she wasn't on the cattle market, as Sarah delighted in calling it. She could see the activity of the gate behind her, reflecting the glass in front of her perfectly. She was stood before a brightly lit world. It seemed even brighter in its image, more garish to the point of unreality. It was layered over the darkness outside, and the muted shapes and shadows that filled it. She could make out the scene beyond the glass, of the December night touched by the orange haze of lampposts. It was by no means scenic. Between the construction site on the opposite side of the road, the hackney cabs in a line, and the Friday night burger van. As the evening progressed, the crowds would thicken, and it would look even worse when the inside was beginning to. But it was more natural than the commerciality of the gate. The darkness at least provided a certain degree of anonymity, not that a girl's night out consisted of hiding in the shadows. They were opposite scenes, facing each other, but she saw them laid in the glass fused into one. She saw it as one image, a captured photograph. It sparked a memory of a collection of photos, sheen of Warsaw, a modern image of the city had been superimposed of a photograph taken during the Second World War, and elements of each had been brought to the fore. The pictures allowed you to appreciate the journey that the city had undergone, to understand how history is made. She began to pull out the different pieces from each of the scenes in front of her, pushing some back, pulling that lamppost forward, fading out that bar in favour of the taxi. The pictures became amalgamated, fused. You could see everything at once, but in truth with each glance you only saw parts. You had to take another glance, notice another part, build up your awareness of what stood before. Cut and paste, mix and match, montage. If this was a photograph, one played within the magic of the dark room, what story would it tell? What reaction would it elicit? You could direct the eye and therefore sway the mind. Draw attention to that police officer, for example. Or maybe instead make that drunk in the centre of the piece. She could always place herself in the middle. Humans are sympathetic creatures and we crave identification. We're also highly open to suggestion. We'll make the first person represented with the hero. No questions asked. If you could so easily manipulate a scene or an image, she wondered if it were possible to do the same with a person. If she could play with Nick's layers, she could reconstruct him just by choosing which parts to look at, take the things he tried to be, his surface self, and melt parts of it back into him, make them discreet and simmering below the surface, flowing like blood beneath the skin, and take the bits he hid, or the bits he didn't even know were there to be hid, and drag them out. With surgical precision, pair him back and cut and paste, paste them on the surface so they became explicit, so they were the first things you noticed on becoming acquainted with him. Nick will never change, Sarah had said. Neither will you. Although obviously there's nothing the matter with you. He's the one with issues. The emphasis always fell on Nick's flaws. What about her own? She supposed it was Sarah's job to comfort her, and obviously that largely centred around slagging him off. But why should she feel that she needed to change him? One earth gave her the right. Maybe it was her who needed change. Maybe a change would do them both good. She made a hasty mental retreat when she realised the weighty significance of her last thought. Blazing rows they did have, with a worrying regularity, but neither of them had ever threatened to leave. It had never before occurred to her. She wondered if Nick saw her in the way she saw herself, if she saw through her skin to the scenes below. Perhaps he saw her with even greater clarity than she did herself. He hadn't come across a mirror yet that broke the skin and pierced the flesh. He probably didn't need the neurosis, the weakness, and the vanities brought to the foreground. He knew them as well as his own. Neither did he need a spotlight shone on her good points. Hell, he must still be with her for some reason. A sudden beep broke her reverie, succeeded by a vibrating buzz in her pocket. Sarah. So sorry I'm late, darling. Be there in ten. Hang tight. Kiss kiss. Be there in ten she wouldn't be. Hang tight tonight she wouldn't. With one last glance at the glass in front of her, and the pictures it bore, she strode through the doors into the night. She was on the other side of the image, like Alice falling through the looking glass. She gave Wonderland one last glance, then cut into the harsh cold. She was taking herself back to Nick. She didn't need a girl's night. 
Her vanity was not as starved as she'd felt it to be. Facing the gate, turn right, and then take the first left into Chinatown. Follow St. Andrew Street until you reach the arch over the road. No Sleep by Tracy Iston I didn't sleep well last night. I should have done with the bed to myself, but there's no rest for the wicked, they says. Turns out they're right. Still, it meant I was able to clear up before it got properly light. When you get up at 3am, there's far too much of the day facing you for you to be able to smile at it confidently. I don't feel at all confident this morning. I keep thinking about last night. What if so someone saw something, heard the shouts, realised what I'd done and called the authorities? I didn't know what the penalty is for a crime like mine, but the very least I can expect is execution, socially speaking. I'll be persona non grata at the golf course. For a, mun a municipal one, it's terribly snobbish. When Michael Kent's throwing affair with that foxy blonde was uncovered, he was ostracised before he even pulled his trousers up. They're all afraid of guilt by association. God knows what they'll make of this. Once I'd finished raking the soil back into pristine velvet rose, rinsed the stains off the shovel and stood in the shower long enough to drown a sturgeon, I had breakfast. But it was still too early for work, so I'm walking as usual. Old habits and all that. It's a strange being on my own, though. Too quiet. The sky is a pale colour, somewhere between blue and grey. It's undecided. There's a slight breeze, too. Wish I was wearing something warmer than my suit. The grass is speckled with dew, so I'm keeping to the walkway. These shoes aren't waterproof. At least I'm avoiding the poop and scoop routine this morning. It's odd here. Those red brick Victorian buildings with the split panelled windows and raw time fixtures are okay. Comforting to think they've been here long enough to have seen it all and survived. The turquoise dooms are surprisingly tit-like for Victorian morality. But maybe they were so morally upright that such shoy thoughts would never have entered their minds. It makes me think of Janet lying on her back, the pursed breast of her youth and mine pointing up at me. That noxious 70s office block over the road is safer territory. Purely function and totally asexual. An architectural hermaphrodite. But that Chinese gateway wedged in between them. Landed like Dorothy's house in Oz. That really does it for me. There's something in the way it's parading itself. Legs akimbo. All red, blue and gold. It's like a cheap harlot in lycra and big hoop earrings. Janet, I've never seen her before. God, she was beautiful when we first met. I never thought I'd get someone like that. After ten years, I thought I was out of danger. I thought we were too comfortable with each other to bother getting up and leaving. Like wanting a cup of tea, but not being able to prize yourself out of a warm bed. Of course, I should have been on my guard. I wasn't tea luring her away. Fine champagne. A body like lacking my layers of bacon fat. A holiday villa in the south of France. The attentive touch of a new lover. Bloody bollocks. While I sweated over incomplete tax returns, she was shagging Dave. I don't know who I'm more pissed off with. Her, him or me. While the train was hurtling towards me, I was too bloody busy washing a bird on the wing. There's one now. Just perching on that stupid Chinese pagoda thing. Is it going to... Yes? No? It's having a think about it. Oh, there we go. A nice big splat of shit right down the gilding. Excellent. They waste money on these things for birds to crap on. I'll bear that in mind next time I'm contemplating an expensive courtship. Still, it just still doesn't justify last night. I pray it relatively painless. She was waiting in the hall for me. Her bags were packed. It took a second for me to take it in. Then it happened, really quickly. Something like this. What's all this? I'm leaving you, Keith. What? I've had enough. What? Dave's asked me to go to France with him. What? Oh, Keith, bloody wake up, will you? I'm having an affair with Dave, and now I'm leaving you for him. You can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. It was starting to get too much like a panto. I was shouting, Janet was shrieking, and bloody Bilbo was yapping. I never did like Jack Russell's. Too vicious, and always underfoot. Get out of my way, Keith! She pushed past me and out through the front door. I followed. She got into my car. That was a step too far. What the hell do you think you're doing? This is my car. I'll get someone to drop it at the office for you tomorrow. She got in, dropped the handbrake and started revving the engine. She was leaving me in my fucking car. I yanked open the door and dragged her out. 
She started screaming. Maybe I was a bit rough, but I really lost it. We struggled in a slapstick embrace that mimicked past lovemaking. And somewhere, above her yelling, my swearing and the car engine whining, we both heard it. Just a sharp, sharp yelp. Sort of like an oral full stop. It was the end. Bilbo was under the front wheels. The car having rolled when I dragged Janet out. Well, it's nearly nine. Guess I can start making my way to work now. Wonder what I should do with all that pedigree chum in the cupboard. Ahead of you is St. James's Park. Cross the road and make your way towards it. When you're facing the stadium, turn right and walk until you find the strawberry pub on your right. You're Scared by Christine Burkhart. Approaching the strawberry, traditional ales. Food all day, live football. Sign the shape and colour of a jersey, black and white stripes, a fat strawberry embossed on the belly. The air is chill, the street empty. White noise, the sounds of distant traffic, comes to you in waves. It's the wrong time of day, the wrong day, in fact, for anything interesting. You want a pint, you want something to eat, you want... A breeze floats past your ears, rustles your hair and disappears. A strange sensation rolls through you, a weight. You were never aware, but it's always been floating in your head. Now it sinks, slowly sipping past your mouth, down into your throat. It drags a prickly tingle along the inside of your skin. You stop, not out of intention or even disorientation. The extra weight has made your body heavy, your legs quiver. You are locked to the pavement, no longer sure if you can lift a foot. The weight settles behind your sternum. It is cold, freezing in fact. It burns, the flame of it spreading over your lungs, slipping around your heart. You try to breathe past it, in, out, in, out. You try to stay calm, stand still, concentrate. Ears prick to the sound of your own lungs, the wheeze you hear. Not again, you think, but this is different, worse somehow. Harder than just pulling in a difficult breath past tightening bronchial passages, everything is closed up, stopped up. Cotton balls of blackness are beginning to coalesce at the edges of your vision. The weight sinks lower, no relief. From just a few feet away there's a righteous cheer, and you could swear there's a match on. Wrong time, wrong day. You tell yourself this, but the crowd is roaring, the sound rushing past, an auditory wind. It stops for the briefest of seconds. You are able to pull in one miraculously deep breath. It is warm and it flows through you. For a moment you think the spell has ended. But it hasn't. Hundreds of footsteps, a gale of voices. From the corner of your vision, the world is suddenly awash with phantoms. A cascading movement of translucent stripes, black and white, overlaying the stadium. They come in bulk, walking, milling, laughing, heading towards you. It's back, frozen feet, frozen lungs, heart thudding harshly in your ears. You can feel it fluttering in your chest, as if it's trying desperately to keep you alive, keep you real. It should be spreading a warm pool of blood, but the familiar lub-dub doesn't seem to reach beyond your upper chest. The rest of your body has gone numb, disappeared. They are moving past you, bumping into you, slamming against your shoulders, against your back, feet hooking your legs as if they would sweep you down. They are trying to walk through you, a stampede of spectral humanity, driving you. No, you don't exist. You want to fight it off. Hands flail mid-air, connect with patches of thick, chilled fog. You want to push them away, but you know they can drag you under. You begin to feel as if they will. Your ears catch patches of drunken laughter, voices raced in song. Songs actually coming in waves, crescendoing. So discordant, too many melodies clashing, broken by yells, words you can't make out. But you can hear happiness and anger. One figure catches your eye. Widened eyes meet your own before blinking blankly. A frown spreads over his face. He looks as if he's seen a ghost. Swish, swish, slowly. How long has it been since you breathed? Swish, swish, like sludge. Is your heart really slowing? Stopping? Swish. One last pinpoint of light, life. You pull your gaze away from the phantom and see a bloated strawberry on a sign. Black. But you find yourself again in a parking lot. Approaching the strawberry, you are there. You want a pint. You want some food. You want. You reach out for the handle. The door swings open in front of you. Dumps a cold mass of air. It blows into your eyes. You're stepping out of the way. 
no one appears. Continue past the strawberry and turn down St. James's Street on your left. At the end of the street turn left, then right, and follow the road alongside the stadium. You will reach a pathway into Lees's Park. Take it and turn to face the stadium one last time. Wave Goodbye by Mark Corcoran Lettuce See how we run. Oh yes, oh yes, see how we run. Through endless forgotten pathways in cities that we now renounce. Through the parks and streets outside where revellers are still spilling out. In some witching hour where we would once hide us against the world. Only now it's us against our memory. And how they waltz past previous futures, navigating beyond pubescent bedrooms into places we once dreaded to tread. Tonight, as a breeze running through this city, the radio recommends we wrap up warm, the television that we stay indoors. The frost that has fallen over where you once stood would bite your fingers if you were to touch. Shut your eyes while the autumn fades and hibernate a while now winter comes. Your long walk home can be put off another hour. With the whispering of half-correct names and an incantation of postcodes, bring these sudden memories back to life and let them roam past the stadiums and bridges whose steel we once mistook for human kindness. Hide away another year, fight away another year. There is no redemption in the past, only a constant shuffling of feet from the present. Do you see how we run? Follow the path you are on, away from the stadium and up to the lake. Here you have a choice. You can circle the lake or explore the park as much as you want. You'll be exiting the park in the southeast corner, past the tennis courts. This is right from where you are standing now. Fastest Heartbeat by PJ Moyer Mum's going to kill me. Okay, it's the first time I've done this, but I know she's not going to like it. Not at all. Sasha used to do it. Not often, maybe once a year. And there was always a rumpus. Always. But she's grown out of it, maybe. She doesn't go to the woods so often now. Too busy with boys, I reckon. I like to go still. I like being there early in the morning. Who says teenagers are meant to sleep all day? I like getting up when it's just light. Especially now it's spring. I've missed the long days. Winter was good this year, though. We had snow. But I'm glad the spring is back. So I came to the woods first thing, just me. There's an old rotten tree about half a mile in as you head towards Tanner's Field. It's got knocked down in a storm. Six years ago, Tasha says it was. But I think it must have been before that. It's so close to being crumbled back to earth. On one part mushrooms grow in the autumn. I hope there'll be some this year. Uncle Mark gave me a book on them, so I know which I can cook and which you shouldn't even touch. Although there aren't that many that are really poisonous. Not like in films or those stupid murder programs Mum and Sasha like to watch together. Pretty much every time I go to the woods I visit the tree. I really want a digital camera for Christmas, but no such luck. So I take my sketchbook and do the best I can. Mr Tyrrell said I should take GCSE art, but Uncle Mark says for sissies. I don't think it is, but I don't know how to tell him. Mum gets cross if we backtrack Uncle Mark. He's not our uncle really, but then I figure he'd work that out already, yeah? Today the sun feels warm, even this early. So I sit on my coat and try and draw the old roots that got half pulled out of the ground when the tree fell over. Must have been a bad storm, but I don't remember it. You think the roots would have rotted away already, but they still look fibrous and strong. It's the trunk and the branches that have disintegrated. Ivy has grown up all around what's left of the lower half too, and some of it is twining around the roots. So you've got the old strands and the new growth together. That's what I want to paint, if my sketch is good enough to work from. So it was because I was looking so closely at the ground at the base of the tree that I saw her. I say her. I've got no idea. She's all curled in on herself for warmth, I guess. I don't want to move her. Not until I know she's safe. I don't think I've ever seen anything so tiny that's alive. I wonder how she got here. There's no sign of any nest. Do mice even make nests? To start with, I thought she must be dead. But I picked her up and put my thumb on her chest. Really gently, mind. It was very faint, but there was the fastest heartbeat ever. It gave me a shock, to be honest, and mine speeded up too. I thought I maybe should leave her at the tree. What if her mother is coming back? I've seen those nature programs. You're not meant to interfere with the natural process of things. 
but it's too late now. I've picked her up before I thought about that. And I've been there about half an hour before I saw her. I think she's been abandoned. That's what I'm telling Mum anyway. I shove my sketch back in my backpack. I wrap the mouse, Bella I'm calling her, in one of my mittens, and put her in the pouch at the front of my hoodie. I always complained it was too girly, having that pouch bit. Now I'm glad, and then I run. With your back to the park, turn left towards the mini roundabout. At the roundabout, turn right and face Trent House. Always Dance, by Laura Hebron. Always dance, never dawdle. Lights go on, dusk is dawning. Winter nights, start at four. Have a drink, just to warm you. Flash your teeth, not a leg. Home by ten, kettle boiling. Curl up, under cover. Snuggle down, shiver, shiver. Lights go off, winter nights. Walk down Lees's Lane until you turn left onto Lees's Park Road. Continue down the hill and go straight over the crossroads. Continue until the road ends at the intersection with Percy Street. Every Word Is You by Josh Cunningham Are we here to sit and ponder, constantly wondering why or how? A politician answers, a philosopher questions. Who was the last political philosopher? More questions to the wrong answers, but keep asking. Next question, please. Too much food these days, they say. More dying from food than famine today. Feast on the sun and gorge on the sweet glow of night. Drink the ecstasy that is horizon and taste the world around you. More feasting on life, but remember to stop and admire. Too much materialism in the world. Love is polluted by objects and man-made things. Well then, use your own words. Not too many. The best poets steal, as you know. More effort, though. Try to create, but remember, you are a creation yourself. Moderation is such an ugly thing. Wearing a fence is not an attractive look. Live fast, die young. More. Just more. But remember to run to the finish line. Then run some more. Turn right and then cross the road by the pedestrian crossing on your left. Go under Eldon Square and pause when you find Old Eldon Square on your left. Amplified Distance by Sean Harris I wish I didn't think about you when I walk past the war memorial. It feels like tempting fate, and I'm suddenly desperate for there to be a penny on the floor that I can pocket, or for two joyful magpies to fly across the green. Just something, anything, I might cancel out my gloomy thoughts and keep you lucky. I know you'd laugh at me. Load of superstitious bollocks, Jen. Since when have you been so daft? And really, I think that you're right. But it comforts me to think I can store up good fortune for you. It comforts me to think I could keep you safe. That was always my job, remember? I held your hand across the street, stopped you talking to strangers. You used to have this little yellow duffel coat with a big hood. You thought it made you look like a fireman. I swear I lost count of the times I had to grab onto that hood and pull you clear of the road, or next door's putt pull, or the duck pond in the park. I wish it could be that easy to hold you back. The thing is, looking back on it all, I can only look after you so long. I might have been the bossy one, making most of the eleven minutes I had in the world before you arrived, but you were always stubborn, always so much stronger than me. So either you were humouring me, or... And I think this is more likely, really. You were relying on me. You knew that I'd step in. You knew that I'd never let you get hurt. I'll not be telling you this theory. I know just what you'd have to say. Oh, right, Jen. Been reading psychology books at college again, have we? But it keeps me awake sometimes, thinking about how we used to be, and how far you've gone since then. I saw Katie Dean by here last week. Remember her? I worked with her last summer, in the cafe. Thick as a brick, and that's being generous. She's the one who, when I told her I had a twin brother, asked if we were identical. Anyway, she was waiting for a bus and we chatted for a bit. She asked how you are, and I gave the usual patter about how brave you're being, how proud we all are. And then, of course, she put on that concerned voice they all assume sooner or later. And she asked me if I thought that I would... 
you know, feel something if anything happens. Not who will. But you two are ever so close, aren't you? Thankfully, her bus came then. Because I was just about ready to snap. Close? We're not close. Nearly 4,000 miles apart. Daft cow. I was still fuming about it by the time I got home. I had to slip quickly through the kitchen, keeping my head down so I could get to the bedroom without anyone asking me what was wrong. They're nice enough, my flatmates. But we don't have a lot to say to each other. And it's been a bit tense around here lately. All my fault, of course. I got into a stupid argument with Sophie's new boyfriend. He's a politics student. You know the type. Roll up in one end. Big book of anarchism for beginners in the other. He said his piece, and I said mine. And I played you like a trump card, the ace up my sleeve. It was a cheap move, and I can't tell you how much I regret it. Not least because I'm going to have to pick at least a fire up in pennies off the street before I feel I've atoned to Lady Luck. The strange thing is, for all that I don't like thinking about you here, with the memorial benches and the battered wreaths and old St George up there forever slaying that poor dragon. Despite all that, this is the place I think of you most often. I walk around the square, like we used to do together, back when you were going through your emo phase and nicking all my eyeliner. Don't be so tight, Jen. I've only used a little bit. Nobody looking at you in those days would ever believe how things turned out. It could only have been four years or so back. It feels like a lifetime. Anyway, I walk and I smoke and I read the benches and I think about you and us. I'll keep my eyes peeled for even the smallest sign that luck is still on your side, that you're going to be alright. So really, I should have been delighted when I was cutting through the square this morning, hurrying to make it on time for my lecture. Some bastard seagull chose that moment to shit all down the sleeve of my new jacket. I know what Katie Dean and her kind mean when they ask me if I'll, you know, feel something. They want to know if I'll feel a repercussion of a bullet to your spine, or if I'll find myself passing out the very second your foot plants down in a minefield. I don't know if I will, and I hope that I'll never find out. But today, when I was standing there, on the verge of total hysterics, I knew that you'd be laughing. 4,000 miles away or not, I felt that alright. I don't know if you felt it back, but eventually I joined in. Continue along the road until you reach the monument again. Your journey ends here. On behalf of all the writers whose works you've enjoyed, thank you for listening.